0: Patent Protection for Energy, part one. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Miles in Conversation. I'm Matthew Birch, I'm a senior associate and a UK and European Patent Attorney in the engineering and tech teams at Cartmiles and Ransford. In this two-part special, we will be discussing key IP considerations when working in the energy sector, which as we all know, is an area of deep interest at the moment. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues Chloe Taylor, a senior associate in our transactions team. Hi Matt. And Russell Woolley, a senior associate in our chemistry team. Hello, great to be here. Over the next two episodes, we're going to be considering in particular the life cycle of intellectual property, particularly patents, as it relates to innovation in the energy sector geographical considerations and other things you might want to consider when protecting your IP in this field. So let's start at the beginning. Chloe, we've seen that many innovative energy companies start life as spin-outs from universities. For example, they might arise from PhD projects or other postgraduate work that's since been taken further. What would you say are some key points to be aware of in situations like this?
1: I think one of the first things for Inventors transitioning from the world of universities to a more kind of commercial focus is is to be very aware that they are moving from one sphere in which a, a lot of the focus will be on research for research sake, uh, for want of a better phrase, and to and kind of that pursuit of knowledge to something which is a little bit more about really trying to find commercial I- ideas and also knowing who owns those, those ideas. And that idea of re- real ownership is one of the things that we see can be quite tricky for people com- coming out of universities. So specifically, you know, many people might assume that if they invent something that they should own it. And that that seems fair enough. It's their intellectual labour that's gone into creating this invention. And so they might think, well, this should be mine. And you can very much understand where that's coming from. But unfortunately, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And particularly when you have someone who has been a PhD student, they've been the recipient of funding, they've been working with the university, there are different organisations which may have claims on the ownership of those inventions. So the university that they've been working with, funding bodies, for example. And more than that, you often will find that, you know, it's not, it's not an individual working by themselves in a lab that comes up with an invention. It may be a combination of different people and they might be coming from the same institution, they might be coming from different institutions and they may also have different Employment relationships, different contractual relationships, which mean that the ownership of their inventions is that all that more complicated. So, having that knowledge of who owns what at the outset is a really, really good place to start. So that I think that's where where I would get people to try and focus, and I think we we do see that difference for particularly from people coming out of universities. Because as we've mentioned, universities, at least in the UK, are often charitable institutions, and so they have these objects to further public information and education, and um, they often have a requirement to show the success and the quality of their research programs, which might include showing, for example, that they have that their researchers have filed patent applications and that their Spin out companies can help demonstrate the impact of that university in terms of the wider uh, educational and scientific endeavours. So, there's lots of different interests to balance at that point. And I think the first step for the inventor and the would be kind of spin out entrepreneur is to work with the university's tech transfer office or spin out office. They may have different names depending on exactly where they are, but they will know, they will have a great deal of knowledge and experience on helping, helping their people, as it were, make that transition from being within the university ecosystem to being a standalone company that's working in the commercial sector. So, yes, they will help them do that initial setup.
0: Thanks, Chloe. And what, what kinds of agreements do we typically see in, in those sorts of scenarios?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for that first that company, when it's made that first leap, it's left the it's left the university per se and it's it's set up on its own as its own company. there will there will be a whole range of of things that it needs to set up from a company commercial perspective which, but really from an intellectual property perspective, what we would look for them to have is really going back to that idea of having robust and very trackable IP ownership. So employment agreements, when they've got employees, including those clear IP ownership provisions. Uh, so making sure that IP, which is generated by the employees, is transferred to the company. We're obviously mostly talking about patents here, but that would relate to um, not just patentable patent-related IP, but it would relate to copyright and all sorts of things that people might generate as well. So very much for employees, but then you've got to look also at the perhaps more kind of casual, uh, more vague relationships that people often have when they're uh, starting out in business. So you might be get, getting consultants in, you might be getting freelancers in, interns, friends, everyone to, to help try and make a pro- get a project off the ground. And you do want to have agreements to make sure that all of those people are transferring any IP that they create to the company so that it's very clear that that company owns the agreement. And once you've got that, and you've got that firm foundation, then the company can start to look to collaborate with people who are not employees. So potentially with academics or consultants from other companies. And again, you want to have documentation there that's very clear who owns the IP and if there are, as it were, any strings attached to that ownership. So often we will see that where an academic is consulting for a commercial company, the academic's kind of home institution, the university that they're attached to, will have some specific requirements, uh, perhaps in relation to uh, a payment on commercialization of the of the invention or on a patent filing as well. Um, you'll also see that uh, some home institutions some of those universities might actually have policy concerns, which means that IP can't be used in certain industries. Uh, energy doesn't tend to be one that comes up from from the things that I've seen. It tends to be things like tobacco, for example, that have a little bit more of a problematic public relations kind of uh, issues let's say and then you'd also need to consider things like whether the academic uh, what they need out of an agreement so actually do they need to have some rights to be able to publish a paper for example relating to these inventions and then if that's the case and it often will be you'll need to you'll need to balance the requirements of the academic with the companies what the company's trying to do in terms of protecting its ip and i know that you and you and russell obviously work with clients all the time who you see coming in rushing to file patent applications in order to make sure that that timing is right and that's yeah and that's something that you really want to make sure that people are not publishing things in advance of patents being filed But that's all things that can be worked out, or at least provisions can be made in agreements with those individuals and institutions. So that's what I'd look to be covering at that point.
0: Thanks, Chloe. That's really interesting. And I think it feeds into um, the next part of the discussion, actually. So, Russell, we heard from Chloe that there are a lot of considerations in the early stages in this field and other fields, for that matter, to make sure you have your IP where it needs to be when it comes to agreements and ownership. But what about the product development itself? What do we need to be particularly mindful of here based on your experience in the sector?
2: The first thing to be mindful of and really to double down on what Chloe said there is be mindful of what you publish. It's completely irrelevant to to own your own inventions and have all your IP agreements line up transferring ownership to you or your spin-out firm That's all irrelevant. If someone from your marketing department discloses the invention as part of a a press release proudly stating how your new energy technology is going to revolutionise the sector, if any invention is disclosed before a patent application is filed, then it cannot be patented. So there's a a degree of IP education needed, um, or at very least some oversight, um, from those in the firm with some IP experience, uh, controlling what is made made available to the public. And I suppose this is particularly relevant to academic spin outs as well, spin outs from universities. You could uh, envisage a situation of a, an enthusiastic first year PhD student disclosing the the key concepts of a of a new invention in in the field of energy or, or batteries you putting that in a poster presentation at, at that first conference they're proudly attending there's a certainly um i p education is needed um in these academic institutions and indeed in a in an early spin out to understand when not to publish something, assuming we've overcome that hurdle and that that new invention hasn't been published and, and we can file a patent application on it. Um, you may need to be selective on precisely what um, patent applications you file, particularly if budgets are tight, as may well be the case early on in a in a in a startup's career. Um, it could be tempting to file an application on any bright new idea the technical team has, and that might be feasible. Feasible now, you, uh, an application can be prepared and filed on a reasonable budget, but you should keep in mind that. Any new patent families filed now will likely incur significant costs in a two and a half, three years time as those applications rumble on through the patent system. So recommend taking a view of your budget now and over the next two to three years and be selective. consider where the money is, is best spent. But that doesn't mean cutting corners with those first few patent filings. I suppose it could be tempting to have something filed on the cheap, on the basis of a few initial results, and then even to almost forget about it for a year before filing a PCT application. But that first filing, that may well be the fundamental IP protecting your entire business for the next 20 years, protecting your flagship product. Without it, you may well have nothing. So we think, and you may well think, well, of course he'd say that he's a patent attorney. But we think uh, a firm really needs to allocate a decent IP budget. It should be working with attorneys with experience in the technical field, with the right chemistry or engineering knowledge, depending on, on the sort of inventions we're talking about. And that the attorney and the technical team should keep in touch as the, as the products develop. The sorts of data and experiments that might be needed to support that fundamental, very important first patent application may well be very different to the sorts of data and experiments that that firm will be uh, undertaking to show to potential customers. And, And We understand time and experiments take time, and the strongest patent applications are those where the attorney was involved at the very early stages. Perhaps even suggesting some additional comparative data to collect, where to focus any further resources. This gives a a much better product than when the attorney is just dumped with the volume of data and a tight deadline of "we need to file this next week because someone's someone's publishing an academic paper." And, And this is particularly important, we think, in a field like energy, in a field like batteries, which is very dense, uh, full of patent publications and full of academic publications. There's a, a great deal of prior art out there and plenty more probably being published as we speak. And it's not straightforward to obtain patent protection here. It might not be enough to file that quick, cheap patent application with a few examples of your new battery chemistry showing that it's great. You may well need to provide a detailed set of comparative examples, reworking the, the existing chemistry of the prior art, showing exactly how and, and why your new chemistry is better. And in, in chemistry fields, you, uh, a new type of oxide for use in a battery, this sort of thing can be absolutely essential to securing grants, and it can't be added later, or at least it's very difficult to. And I'm not sure these nuances are, are always appreciated by a, a technical team who may well be inclined to do lots of experimental work further optimising their own new chemistry, and perhaps missing the not appreciating that comparative examples of the existing chemistry uh, are almost as important as as those examples showing why their new chemistry is um is great. That brings us back to the point I made earlier about having a a degree of IP education for your team. Perhaps your attorneys should sit down with the technical team, give them a, a Patents 101, some sort of basics of patent law, and explain what sort of things the patent attorney needs to impress a patent examiner. And that may well be different to what sort of data the firm needs to impress a potential customer. So they're they're the sorts of things I think you need to have in mind in in the early stages when you're developing your first few products.
0: Yeah, thanks, Russell. I I completely agree. Especially, as you said, in such a fast-moving market, it's easy for companies, other organizations, even individuals, despite their best efforts, to let something slip. And for that reason, you know, regular communication with your patent attorney or any other IP counsel is really crucial, especially in these early stages. Because the sooner we know about any questions or situations to do with IP, the better equipped we are to help deal with them and come to a successful result. That brings us to the end of this part one of the two part series. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Cart Miles in Conversation. I hope it's been a useful and interesting discussion for you. We'll be bringing you the second episode soon. In the meantime, if you do have any questions on this topic or any other topic that you think we might be able to assist with, please feel free to email any one of the three of us. Um, you can find our email addresses on our web profiles or you can contact Cartmiles Miles generally on communications at carpmiles.com. We hope you can join us next time.